Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Heroes, our episode on the Roger Corman Fantastic Four. Although it's called the Roger Corman Fantastic Four, but Roger Corman did not direct the Fantastic Four. Oh, no. Uh, but this, yeah, but this is Russ, and joining with me tonight are Jordan and Jim. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. And it's fun we're doing this in Fantastic February, but we actually just missed the 20-year anniversary of its, what I guess was supposed to be its release date, in January. I think it was January 19th of 1994 was its supposed going-to-be release date. Ah, yes, a day long remembered. Yeah, (laughs) it's funny, the the notes I found in just kind of poking around were it was supposed to be Labor Day of 93. So I'm sure it's one of those things that that varies based on who you ask and what source you read. We, yeah, the the source I had says originally that's when it was going to be, and but then that summer they had trailers, and then it was eventually going to premiere at the Mall of America on July, right. or January 19th of 94. Right, as some sort of uh, promotional like charity casting or something like that. Yeah, Ronald McDonald House. Yeah, yeah. Didn't happen, though. No. Thank God. No. <laughs> So this is this is kind of a weird episode of Real Heroes. I I I think we put it on the list because technically it is a comic book movie. Uh, it is terrible, so I thought it would be fun to talk about that. And, you know, because I'm going to jump in right now and say I don't know if I'd go so far as to say terrible. Wow, I liked certain elements of this movie quite a bit. Others were terrible and <laughs> probably outweighed the good things. But there were certain things in here that I was like, you know, on a Nick Fury Agent of Shield level, yeah, not not really that bad. Allow me to say that I've I personally have watched Plan Nine from Outer Space twenty times easily. I have as many Mystery Science Theater three uh, thousands as I, can be bought on DVD in my collection. I know from bad movies. This is a bad movie, but probably not the worst on our list. Uh, maybe. I mean, maybe. have you guys have you guys seen Shaquille yes. O'Neal as Steel? Yes. Okay. Yes, okay. that's true. Yes. Have you no, seen uh, the John Wooten Jim, Doctor Strange? I mean, <laughs> Jim, I can do you one better. I not only have not seen Steel, but I have read the children's novelization of the movie, and I read it when I was about nine. Yeah, I think I think we've talked about that before. Yeah. Right? So because I, I, yeah, I mentioned, I think I mentioned, I have the, I have the action figure. <laughs> I think I also had the novelization of Shazam. I don't know what I was into as a child. Shazam or anyway. Kazam? Uh, Kazam, Kazam, I guess, yeah, yeah, technically. Shazam, that's a whole other kettle of worms. Yeah. So, yeah, so this one's going to be a little different when we go through things, because it doesn't, it kind of, it's kind of like a TV, made-for-TV thing, where, you know, the budget and, and the box office numbers are either non-existent or very fuzzy, so... Well, we had some of the same problems when we did Nick Fury, so... Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah, without and, Right, right. And for TV, it, it kind of makes sense. So we'll go through, like we typically do, we'll go through the numbers, we'll go through the cast, and then I've I've kind of dug up from a, several different sources just kind of like the what the hell happened to this thing to cause it to actually be in existence, number one, and number two, to never be released. Um, so we'll start out with kind of the production side of the thing. So it was filmed in December of 1992, um, al- allegedly. it. Um, I guess over 21 or 25 days, depending on depending on who you talk to and what source you you listen to. So obviously, the movie was never released theatrically, and in fact, the prints were ordered destroyed, so it never had any kind of box office official box office run. So there are no domestic or foreign box office gross numbers, no opening weekend numbers. Um, I've I've found budget anywhere from a million to a million five. So. 
somewhere in the million to, to $1.5 million range in 1992 is... And boy, isn't every penny on the screen, guys? Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it really it is yeah. for, you know, a million dollars in 94 or 93. Yeah, I'd say it probably is all on the screen. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty modest budget. I think even for probably a, a sci-fi-ish made-for-TV movie, million five is, is even in 92, is probably... Uh, uh, a, probably a, a slim budget, but but that's that's and again those are somewhat unofficial. You know, for a million dollars, they really pulled off some of that stuff. Some of it, again, not all of it. Yeah, but you see a lot of, but you see a lot of the hallmarks of cheap movie making in this. You see, sure. a lot of stock footage. Yes, you yes. see a lot of. Re- I mean, there's so much NASA stock footage in this oh, yeah. movie. It's not even. They, <laughs> yeah. they should have gotten a credit. You know, um, the 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 machine. I mean, well, we'll get into particulars later, but just like yeah. the the level of writing, level of acting, I mean, everything across the board. But some of that forced them to be clever. Like, I was really impressed with some of Reed's stretching ability, how they would use, like, forced perspective to trick you into thinking that he was far away when his arm was close or stuff like that. Some of that was really clever, what they were forced to do with that limited budget. Again, not necessarily good, but clever. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is definitely in a in a pre mostly pre-CG era, you know, especially on a modest budget, too. So that, that definitely factors into to things. Looking at, at the Rotten Tomatoes scores, the official score from Rotten Tomatoes by critic is 33%, and the audience score is 37%. So, uh, you know, we talked about this before, but a lot of times the audience reception and the critical reception tend to be fairly far apart when the critical reception is very low. Well, I mean, you have to factor in, too. I'm sure, I mean, you said this didn't really get a theatrical release. I'm yeah. sure the amount of like, actual critics who actually saw it and reviewed it is pretty low. Um, yeah. Something I thought was pretty interesting, though, uh, IMDb uh, that has a rated at 3.9, and it has the uh, 2005 Fantastic Four rated at 5.7. So it's really not too big of a spread. It's not too big of a difference between the movies. Yeah, it, it's funny. The Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer the critic reception score was like 37%. So uh, it's funny that this one and that one are not that far apart, at least from critics that reviewed I, you know, both movies. Uh, the director, we'll get into to some crew, the director was Ole Sassoni, and he's got a lot of credits with like Hercules' Legendary Journey, Xena Warrior Princess, uh, just a ton of TV stuff. That seems to be kind of his, uh, and apparently he's done a bunch of music videos, so that's kind of his bread and butter. Well, also the actual uh, other theatrical films he's done have been like Blood Fist Three, yeah, uh, yeah. Forced to Fight, and uh, a Playboy, uh, you know, Playback. It's called. Um, so I mean, like you say, he's done a lot of TV, but not not much else. Right on the writing side, accredited are Craig Nevius and Kevin Rock. Uh, Craig Nevius is, I guess, biggest claim to fame in writing is uh, the TV show Black Scorpion, which I have actually never seen. Oh, I've seen that. It's kind of it's kind of goofy and campy. Yeah, very nineties, um, I guess. Yeah, I've never even heard it was of on. That. I think it was on Showtime because Maybe. there are boobs in it. I think it was like a, a Showtime exclusive for a while. But gotcha. then it ended up on home video. I'm trying to remember the name of the actress, but uh, yeah, it was just a lot of women. And it was very much a, a campy kind of take, took after um, you know like the original Batman series, over the top kind of thing, but, but with boobs. Nice. Kevin Rock, the other art, the other writer, was credited with uh, such greats as The Philadelphia Experiment 2 
and uh, <sighs> Warlock the Armageddon. So definitely, oh, I've seen. I've actually seen Warlock the Armageddon. Yeah, uh, Julian Sands faces off yes. against Charles L. Grant. <laughs> uh, I remember that movie was on cable like every five minutes at one point. And I think that was like the third, the third or fourth uh, Warlock movie. Yes. Julian Sands yeah. got a lot of mileage out of that franchise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the score was done by David and Eric Worst, who they... It they was were... the worst, too, wasn't <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, again, those guys have mostly done TV stuff. Uh, I was reading somewhere that they put, put in an extra six grand of their own money to actually use an actual orchestra for, for this uh, score. So I thought well, that was I mean, kind we of... got. I got to stop right here if we're going to talk about the score really quick. First of all, I mean, they cribbed from John Williams left, right, oh, and yeah. center when they had the dramatic music. Every time there was like any kind of romance on the scene, it was like jazz flute and, and strings. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, it was like a tampon commercial or something. It was just like, like when Sue first meets Reed when she comes down the stairs, it's like, or when uh, or when Ben first meets Alicia on the stairs and knocks over a statue, you know, just like oh, some ham-handed uh, uh, score here. I mean, it, it harkened back to like the fifties and sixties, like well, Robert Lippert or something. It's just really bad. Yeah, and then the climactic battle music is you already mentioned John Williams, but it's pretty much directly cribbed from the trench run music of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. That dun 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 oh, yeah. Dun, yeah. dun 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 boom. That part, it's it's that. Yeah, I noticed that a lot. There's a lot of that score that uh, is very reminiscent of the Williams Star Wars stuff. Uh, so getting into the cast, this is an interesting bunch that we've got here. So we've got Alex Hyde White playing uh, Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. Uh, and again, a lot of TV stuff for this guy. Uh, I guess his biggest claim to fame role-wise that he would have gotten exposure for would have been playing uh, young Henry Jones in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He has done, like you said, a lot of TV Going back to uh, Newhart. I mean, Newhart, yeah. Murder, She Wrote, Walker, Texas Ranger, uh, Babylon 5, Mantis. I mean, he is a really, he's just one of those character actors, one of those faces that you see and you're like, oh yeah, I've seen him before. He's done so much. I mean, I, all the, all four of these actors who played the main Fantastic Four went on to do like a lot of, of TV work. It's funny, his portrayal of Reed in a lot of ways, like when he says, the when he calls Victor by name, he sounded... To me, a lot like uh, Yoan Gruffin, who played uh, Reed in the you know in the Tim Story version that came along a little later. Like I didn't see it, there, there was nothing really egregious with his portrayal. I mean, I, I think any shortcoming with his portrayal of this uh, character is more related to the writing and the and the direction than it is anything else. It was hard to pay attention to him after he got the side the sidewalls. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. Just like they were painted, it looked the like they were painted painting. on, like literally, like with rustoleum or something. Just yeah, distracting. Yeah. So then Jay Underwood, who was probably the only actor that I was really familiar with, other than George Gaines, who we'll get through in a little bit, uh, when I actually saw this, and he he's kind of one of those character actor guys that's shown up in a lot of stuff. Uh, he was in Uncle Buck. He played Bug, the the boyfriend in Uncle Buck, which is uh, one of my favorites. Uh, he also he played, played uh, a young Ernest Hemingway in one of my favorite unsung TV series of all time, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Oh, uh, yes, yes. For three episodes, um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, he was also in The Boy Who Could Fly, which I guess was kind of, that movie, I, I guess has gotten a lot of positive press or talk, or like it was, it seemed like it was one of those movies in the in the mid-80s that, that was kind of like a heartfelt flick that a lot of people saw. 
so that, like I said, just a lot of character actor stuff for for Jay Underwood. He's been um, on the X Files, Star Trek Voyager, sure. a lot of a yeah. lot of other uh, like genre stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Rebecca, I'm gonna say Stab because Stab just sounds kind of funny, but I'm not sure. I, I'm I'm assuming it's Stab and, and not Stab, but uh, played Susan Storm, the Invisible Girl, Invisible Woman, and again, a lot of TV stuff for her. I guess her biggest claim to fame. Uh, was she was a former Miss Nebraska and actually finished in the top six of Miss USA. So, um, and she was really pretty. I mean, she was a nice looking. I, I I think she was a good choice to play Susie Storm. She she definitely looked the part. She had nice, uh, nice figure. I mean, it just I I thought you know it worked. Again, I think yeah, I'm more looking this, at a picture of her right now. This is like a recent picture. She still doesn't look bad. No, absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't kick her out of bed for eating crackers. But like you said, a lot of TV work. Dexter. She was in Glee, Criminal Minds, Desperate Housewives, yeah. The Mentalist. A lot of a lot of current stuff. So, yeah, CSI. Yeah. Uh, Michael Bailey Smith, who played Ben Grimm, not the Thing, but Ben Grimm, uh, was actually a member of the Dallas Cowboys for a short period of time before he uh, had some sort of season, uh, career-ending. I think it was an ankle injury or a knee injury or something like that. Um, but he actually started and turned into to bodybuilding until he turned into acting and then just again just a lot of smaller parts not not a ton of of work for him um over the years i gotta say i loved his look his face and haircut whatever he he just looked distinctive and not i don't know if weird's the right word but he didn't look like anybody else i've seen like he just he stuck out in a good way yeah yeah and i actually kind of liked his performance as well uh, for what little of the movie he's in. Yeah, yeah. Joseph Culp, who plays uh, Victor Von Doom slash Doctor Doom. Who gets billed twice in the credits. Yeah, that's hilarious. He gets hilarious. billed as both, which is yeah. weird. Yeah. Uh, his biggest claim to fame is, uh, in, look- in looking back at his, his work, is he plays Archie Whitman, who is uh, Don Draper slash Dick Whitman's father on uh, Mad Men. So was- uh, father or uncle? Well, I guess it would be his uncle. Yeah, the the owner of the brothel, I guess. Yeah. Not I did not realize that was yeah, him. Yeah, Archie Whitman. Um He's also this he's I mean, the biggest claim to fame being the son of Robert Culp. I mean, <laughs> you know. I, I have a great description of this guy if you've never seen him, okay? Take Benedict Cumberbatch, suck out all the charisma and acting talent or acting talent, and then flatten his face. <laughs> and he looks yeah. like this guy. Yeah. Um Plus Ian the way I just the way he played Victor before the accident, yeah, was just kind of like weird, bumbling, nerdy. Like, okay, Reed, ah, I'm just like, oh man, I just totally missed the point of the character. You know? Yeah, uh, Ian Trigger, who played the jeweler, which I guess the thought with this character was to use the mole man, but not call him the mole man, and because they the plot device was this jewel that got switched out on the ship um so i guess they kind of <laughs> had giant to backfill fake him diamond. Oh my yeah God. this was <laughs> I, I hate to say this cuz i it's not fun to speak ill of the dead but uh this was his last acting credit <laughs> in 1992 and he he died in 2010 but most of his credited work is a british television he did a ton of british tv uh, before taking on this role uh, of the jeweler in, in the Fantastic Four. I don't know that I would say he was bad, but he was definitely out of place in this movie. Like, everything involving his character was uh, the worst stuff in the movie, yeah. in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. But again, that was the writing, more than anything else. It was just, why is this character here? The only thing that was slightly worse than that guy was the uh, the one henchman's Russian accent. Oh, <laughs> I think you mean Latverian accent. Well, whatever. <laughs> tomato, tomato. 
They made, huh. made Nico Bellic sound believable in comparison. <laughs> hey, cousin, hey, let's cousin. go bowling. Maybe he he would have sounded like he was out of a Hawkeye uh, book if he had just said bro every every yeah, right. <laughs> The proto tracksuit mafia. Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah. So then we have, of course, George Gaines, who played the loudest, most boisterous professor I've ever seen in my life. Um, and I really like George Gaines. I mean, you know, if, if you're struggling to remember who he is, he played, uh, he was in the Police Academy movies. He played, was it Commandant Lassard? He played like the head, the head guy. He's a huge character actor. The guy's been in probably at least 100, 150 movies and TV, in, in TV bit parts. Um, still alive, funny enough. He was born in 1917. He's still, he's still kicking around at 97. He was in, of course, Punky Brewster for for the, anybody. Brewster's that, dad, yeah, yeah, that remembers the '80s. And then t- my favorite role that he uh, that he did was in To Be or Not to Be. I love Mel Brooks's To Be or Not to Be, and he was uh, he was in that. Great movie. Yeah, Cat uh, Green played Alicia Masters again for her last acting credit that uh, that is credit to her, <laughs> uh, and she is still alive. Seems like there's a curse almost on these yeah. actors who are in this movie. Well, I mean, a lot of them, from what I understand, the actors all thought this was going to be theatrically released yes. and they were banking on, you know, this is, could be my big break. Yeah. And then it just didn't happen, which is a shame, you know, especially once we go to look into why it was never released. Yeah. But you know, these people banked on a horse and that horse didn't win the race. Didn't even, didn't, didn't even, even win race, the race. Didn't enter the race. She's done some music work that she has credited to her. So I don't think acting, it doesn't appear that acting was maybe her first love that it, that it has to do with music. So she's got some like soundtrack credits and things like that. Um, and lastly, that we'll talk about is Carl uh, Chiaferolio. I'm probably butchering that um, as the thing. So he actually was the the guy that played the thing, and he's just a stunt guy. I mean, he has got a ton of stunt work to his credit. You look at his IMDb page, and it's any any sh- TV, especially TV show, but but several movies uh, that that does any kind of stunt work at all. This guy's had a hand in it in the last you know 30 years or so. So he just got a, he has a huge body of work. Did you say Johnny Storm? Did I miss that one? Yeah, Jay Underwood. Yeah, yeah. Jay Underwood. Oh, okay. Yeah, you did. Okay, sorry. Um, so that kind of rounds out the cast and the crew. So I figured before we, you know, normally we just kind of open it up to general discussion. I, I, I thought I'd go through my notes on what I was able to kind of piece together on the production of this movie and just kind of like well, how it got in the state that it is. And from what I was able to find, there's a German uh, movie producer named Bert Bernd Eichinger. Um, who obtained the rights in 1987-ish for about $250,000 from Marvel. This is back in the 80s when Marvel was really trying to make this big push in the motion pictures. They were you know, trying to go whole hog on a Spider-Man movie and trying to do things. Wasn't that I right think before the, they went bankrupt? Um, no, the they bankruptcy bankrupt didn't there. hit until like 2000. Um, so they, they, were, they were still several years away from the bankruptcy. Um, but it was, it was years, it was about you know, four or five years before like the heyday when... You know, money was just coming in, you know, by the bucket in the in the, you know, 93, 94 ish. Which explains why it was only two hundred fifty thousand dollars, because that's an insanely cheap yeah. licensing fee. So he got the rights for two hundred fifty thousand and eighty seven uh, and no you know, real studio was committing to this project because of the budget. You know, they were just really afraid to pull the trigger on this because they thought the budget was just going to be way too big um, and they they, you know, just didn't didn't want to do it. So the rights just kind of languished. And apparently on December 31st of 92, the rights were set to expire. And so uh, uh, Eichinger and his production company had to have something in the works by December 31st of 92. Otherwise, they would have to forfeit the rights and pay Marvel a $5 million fee 
for not making the movie. So I guess as part of the rights, you know, Marvel basically said, well, we expect to make probably at least that much money just in licensing, merchandise, their whatever percentage of the gross that they have, etc., um, by that by that time from a movie actually being released. So Eichinger kind of saw the deadline coming. He didn't have a studio to put up the money to make the movie. So he asked for an extension from Marvel, and Marvel told him no. So he was kind of between a rock and a hard place, and this is like you know mid mid ninety two, early ninety two ish. So at that point, he went to Roger Corman, and basically just kind of said, "Hey, I need you to make this movie on the cheap for me." And so that's where this million, million and a half, you know, depending on on what source you're looking at, comes into play. And you know, he figured, okay, he'll he'll pass that off to Corman to make the smaller movie to retain the option because all he had to do is just is just go into production on a movie to retain the the rights and not let them lapse. And at that point, he figured, well, there's nothing in the contract that says I have to make a big budget or a big movie, so I'll just make something. Uh, and again, the schedule was between 21 and 25 days. They used various locations um, in Europe and in the U.S. to to shoot on the cheap. Um, and again, l- like we mentioned before, it was, it was scheduled originally to release on Labor Day of 93. Uh, the cast did a bunch of press for it. Uh, I, apparently they showed the trailer in front of some other movies and the cast was on board to, to kind of hype it up and do, do a little bit of cat, uh, uh, promo for it. Um, but alas, it never released. Um, so years later, I guess Stan Lee was interviewing or was being interviewed by Kevin Smith, or maybe it was when they were doing mall rats or something like that. And they, they discussed this and Lee said, well, it was never meant to be released in the first place. Like this was just meant to be made to retain the rights. Um, and Corman and Eichinger have come back and, and we all know Stan Lee's memory is, uh, a little selective to say the least, Hmm. you know, he, he tends to, uh, he tends to remember what he wants to remember the way he wants to remember it. So Corman and Eichinger says, no, that's not true. They always intended for this thing to be released. They never, you know, intended to make it and, and for it to be a flop. And then Avi Arad kind of stepped on the scene as as the head of, you know, what was not Marvel Studios, but basically the, the movie wing of Marvel at the time. Um, and they Marvel ended up, I think, I can't remember what the timing was, but Marvel ended up buying New World. And I want to say this was maybe after all this happened, maybe late 90s when they bought New World Cinemas. Or New World Entertainment. New World Entertainment, yeah, 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 which yeah. which encompassed New World, which, again, that was kind of Corman's company that, that produced this uh, this flick. But anyway, Arad was really concerned that this was going to be a low-budget movie. He was worried it was going to tarnish the image. And so after it was all said and done, before it was actually released, he paid Eichinger $2 million bucks to basically burn the prints. And so the movie was never released. All the prints were ordered destroyed. And we all know how well that turned out. Yeah, yeah. So obviously there are still copies somewhere because uh, I've seen this several times now. I mean, I've seen it. Well, I shouldn't say several. I've seen it twice. Um, I saw it originally, I want to say maybe like 2001, 2002-ish. Um, and then I just watched it recently for the, the show here. Um, but you can go to YouTube.com and search Corman Fantastic Four and uh, watch it all day long. For free. For free, which I find it, very strange. And it's a uh, it's a really crappy VHS transfer. But, oh, it's uh, horrible. But it's there. Yeah. And it, it just adds so much more to it, and it's like such a bad movie. And the transfer is bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like insult to injury. Yes. Um. But it's funny because uh. So when Arad gave him two million bucks, Corman always jokes that, or recently he's joked that this is like the most profitable movie that he's never that he's never released. 
just just because I guess of how much money that he was paid just to not not have to really do anything for it. Um, you know when it was all done. Um, Eichinger, funny enough, uh, retained you know because of that, you know because of the way things went out, he retained the rights uh, to the to the franchise, and he he was still producer when when Fox picked it up and decided to make their you know FF reboot uh, you know ten years ago with uh, Tim Story and and crew. So it was funny that uh, whatever he tried at that point was successful and allowed him to. Uh, go on and make the big budget movie that he always hoped to make uh, down the road. All of that said, uh, I, I know recently there's been a lot of uh, uh, because of the the tenth anniversary of of the movie intending to be released. Uh, I I can't remember twentieth twentieth. I'm sorry, uh, time flies. Somebody is looking to make a documentary on. It's called Doomed, and it's it's basically going and interviewing the cast and the crew and. Uh, you know, folks involved in this and just kind of uh, make this documentary to say, you know, to, sh- to give the official story of what happened with this whole thing. And I think it's it's either on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. I'm not sure which one it is, but they're basically looking for, you know, folks to donate to um, to help make this project a reality uh, and put it out, which I, I think will be interesting uh, to get to get people to actually, you know, kind of uh, go on the record you know, with this. It's been kind of weird how they've been kind of a bunch of Kickstarters for documentaries and movies that never got made. Yeah. You know, or movies that never made it. Like there's this, there's one uh, they're making about Jodorowsky's uh, version of Dune. Yes. It was all designed by H.R. Giger and, uh, yes. you know, would have been incredible and awesome. And then there's also one that they're making about the Nicolas Cage, Tim Burton version of Superman. Yes. Yes. That never came to fruition from the J.J. Abrams treatment. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So that's, you know, that, again, that's kind of the, the history and, and how we kind of got to where we got to. Um, so I guess now we'll just I, I what I imagine is going to be a fairly brief discussion, um, talk about the movie itself and just kind of what we thought and things that stuck out and, you know, everything else. When it, it's funny, because when it started it, you know, you, you fire this thing up, you start watching it and it's got this cool kind of Fantastic Four logo. And again, you, you kind of got to frame everything in the time period. So you're not expecting this to be, you know, a Avengers level, uh, you know, you know, CG extravaganza. But, you know, you do have a certain standard in your head. Uh, it seemed to me like they're trying to um, almost not, uh, you know, ape or parrot or whatever, but like almost they were trying to copy the, the opening of the uh, original Superman, the movie where they came in from space. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then there's like, you know, the planets and everything. And this is the beginning of the stock footage barrage too. Is during yes. the opening credits, we get that that four symbol that flies to to the camera, you know, in front of the star field that has way too many stars in it, and, <laughs> and then we start seeing a whole bunch of NASA stock footage and animation. Um, they really should have gotten an extra credit. For, I mean, we see it again, you know, when the rocket ship you know launches or whatever. I also want to say, except for a few scenes, and I don't know, it might be the transfer, but but maybe not. This movie is dark. It's just not lit yes. well. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if that was to show it so they could, you know, maybe get away with more crappy special effects or anything like that, but it just was not, it was super dark, except for just a few scenes, like the classroom scene for one and just a couple others. But for the most part, this movie is just dark, dark, dark. Yeah, and again, some of that is hard to tell. Like, you know, was it not properly color-timed? You know, what, you know, I got to imagine, though, this is, 
because this was intended to be released and was, you know, trailers and everything and on the cusp, that this is probably the final, as final a version as we're going to get. But my guess is it's probably a technique, like you said, Jim, to cover over a lot of hurt, you know, you know, not well-formed, you know, backgrounds and, you know, costumes and things like that that could, you know, be covered up with, you know, things not being super well lit. Although the first time that they discover their powers after they crash land back on Earth is one of the few brightly lit scenes where they're outside. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of has a weird, you know, again, the, the, the narrative of the movie, it, it, it in some ways follows a little bit more closely to traditional comic book Fantastic Four than, the, than even the Tim Story version did, you know, where, um, you know, Victor and Reed are college, you know, buddies or, you know, college allies. And, you know, they're working on this experiment. The experiment, you know, basically blows up because... Uh, let's, slow, Vic- let's, slow, let's slow down for a minute, okay? First of all, Victor Von Doom, instead of being portrayed as a haughty, overconfident, um, you know, um, negligent, uh, you know, genius or whatever, in this seems... The guy plays him like he's kind of a simpering toady to read. You know, yeah. he's like, yes, Reed. Sorry, Reed. You know, he keeps, like, making mistakes left and right, and this seems kind of bumbling and stuff. And then they go into the room where they have the giant what's-this machine that they use later, um, and it's controlled by, obviously, a video editing board. Did you guys catch yeah. that? Like, when yeah, he pulls the, the lever for it, it's the... obviously yeah, yeah. a video editing board. I'm just like, like, wow, did they, like, film this in the TV, in the AV studio or something? Um, and, and then the, the, um, I don't know, just like that giant, I'm just thinking to myself, Okay, who would let a student, I mean, I mean, build a giant, you know, chrome chandelier <laughs> in their observatory? You know, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know, it just kind of blew, blew my mind in a lot of different ways. But please continue. Yeah. Um, so, again, you know, he wants to continue with the experiment. He doesn't think that Reed is right. And, of course, the thing backfires literally onto Victor. He, in a strange twist, he's presumed dead. Um, you know, he's, he's all burned up and taken away. <clears throat> the experiment is a failure. Um, uh, the least convincing doctor ever, by the uh, way. Oh my God. Yeah. The guy who plays that doctor is just obviously someone's friend or a grip or just someone they're like, yeah, put that white coat on. Okay. Now deliver this line. You know, it's like, yeah, you're so not a doctor, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. It just really stuck out. I'm just like, and and it's funny too, because the the whole thing you know this with this whole colossus comet thing and did when he when it was being explained in the beginning did i mishear that or did did george gaines the professor say it would actually slow the earth's rotation no i think they were saying it would be slowed by the earth's gravity as it oh, would okay. pass all right I'm, i totally i think that's that. what it was, was like, and then that the reed hell? and doom's machine was supposed to slow it down even more was my impression and channel the energy somehow. right yeah um, and then, of course, we find out that Reed and um, Ben were staying at uh, Mrs. Storm's boarding house. So apparently Sue and Johnny's mom ran uh, a boarding house for college kids where we see the young Sue Storm, who is completely smitten with with Reed Richards and uh, young Johnny Storm, who likes to play video games with Ben with Ben Grimm. So I, I thought that was kind of a. I guess one of the positive takeaways is they kind of set up the fact that there's an age differential between Reed and Sue, which, again, kind of matches the comics, um, and that Sue is, is kind of smitten with Reed, and but Reed is, you know, kind of oblivious to it, which, oh again... God, the scene where she comes down the stairs, shot through all that cheesecloth, that music, 
oh like, man so cliched i'm just like oh really <laughs> yeah so we get so after all this we get a 10 year jump and well hold on hold on before we before we move to that i got stuff to say about this scene he put you cut out before um so so this introduction of young sue is where we begin the all romantic relationships in this movie must be extremely creepy <laughs> and yes i understand the whole boarding house and young sue has crush on reed thing has been reflected in the comics at least in some versions of the origin at least to my memory and granted i'm not the most well-versed in classic fantastic four but i do know i have read some versions that are similar to this that said not all canon is good canon and this was super creepy like, I, I did not need to see this in the movie. And then everything with Alicia later is also extremely now, take creepy good care of my, Take good care of my children when you take them into space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, a completely what? different thing. But yeah, also and then, just and like, then Ben's whole, what? Ben, like, convinces Reed to take Johnny and Sue with him, like, for no good reason at all. Well, because they know the experiment better than anybody else. Why? Yes, exactly. Well, why? Do they why? why would they know the experiment better? Than yeah, so that that okay, so that's one thing that really just I was like, what? They're walking up to the door, and he says, "Oh, well, they they're familiar with the experiment." But when they walk in the door, and Sue comes down the stairs, and Reed looks at her, it's like he hasn't seen her in ten years. Right. So I'm like, right. wait a minute now. If they they're they're making it seem like they haven't seen each other in a long time, and they're coming you know coming back to do this. How the hell are they so adept at what this experiment is? Like, that just didn't make any sense. Yeah, I know which one you mean. So then the the, the other bit was when when Ben bounces into Alicia Masters and her statue gets... That whole thing was just so uh, cheeseball and so bad. And I like, mean, just like so said, terrible. So creepy. Like, I'll protect you. And like, you just met the... What? Like, you would never say that to someone, you, you know, I'm sorry. And, and someone he's just picked just up met. and not helped up off the ground, picked, yeah, picked up, up bear hug style. Put her down, yeah. Like, uh, granted, I'm not a blind, I'm not blind, so uh, thankfully. But if if I was and someone picked me up bear hug style, I would probably file charges against. At least break <laughs> out the pepper spray, you know. Like, oh, it's so creepy. Yeah, which is really. And weird. again, I like the actor who played Ben in this movie, but it was just such an odd scene. And then the the worst offense I think in the whole movie is the fact that they could swap out this diamond and nobody noticed. Yeah, right. Like, wait a minute, this a is diamond the, key? the size of a birthday cake, like uh, literally yes. the size of a child's birthday cake. And the jeweler just happens to have one that looks exactly like it. He only knows there's a diamond in the vicinity, and that's what he's going after. Yet he has an exact duplicate of this bizarre-looking lump of diamond smell it from a hundred miles away and for the longest time i thought he was one of doom's guys like it was yeah. it took about 20 minutes of his storyline before i was like oh they're not working together okay <laughs> no, just the guy with the boris badenoff accent and the other yes. guy but it's just like okay so you're not going to notice that your key piece of equipment that is going to keep you from being destroyed is uh been swapped out like that just that just to me just I just, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't take that. And then once they go into space and it fails to do what it's supposed to do, he's like immediately, it's a fake. It's been switched yes, out. Yes, yes. Really? Maybe it's just not working. I mean, there are a million things that could have gone wrong, but no, it's that. Well, and I guess the one thing, if you want to talk about, you know, how it, you know, the, the comic 
you know, canon versus the movie canon, you know, th that it stepped on is the fact that Reed made a mistake. I mean, that is the biggest thing, and it, and it hangs over Reed's head for a long period of time, and they've, they've done some really interesting things with that over the years. But the whole premise is the fact that it was Reed's fault that this happened to everybody else. And they basically took that and threw it out the window, you know, with this thing being switched. Because, you know, we're led to believe that, oh, if this diamond was still there, then everybody would have been fine. It would have, you know, siphoned off the energy and, and everything would have been great. Even, even in the story, the Tim Story Fantastic Four, it, it was still basically Reed's fault that that happened. Like, he miscalculated, you know, this anomaly that, that you know, swept over them. So I, that was, the, I guess, the thing in this movie that I really had a problem with. Also, this is a very minor thing, but isn't he not supposed to get the sidewalls until the gamma radiation or the cosmic radiation? In the comics, I or think... Or does that vary? No, no I think in the, the comics... He had the sidewalls pre-cosmic pre rays in the original Kirby Lee. Yeah. Oh, okay. So. I, I, they, I think they just did that to show, like, his his age, like that he was definitely older. We're going to paint the sides of your head with Rustoleum to show that you are older. Yeah. <laughs> but Ben's going to be the same exact age he was... Ten years ago, you, however, yes, are going to be old. Yes. Um. So yeah, it was just it just the whole thing was was crazy. And then, of course, so the ship it looks like the ship basically explodes in orbit, and then somehow there's not a piece of the ship intact that's bigger than like I don't know, um, a Yugo, maybe probably half the size <laughs> of a Yugo. And yet they all survive the crash landing, and I'm like, what? not a scratch on them, not yes. a scratch on them. They all were all well know, smudged and dirty, but that was it. Yeah, they kind of made it seem like, oh, well, it was because they, you know, whatever they were exposed to, that's that's how, um, you know, they survived it, which is ludicrous. Yeah, comic book logic wise, I can that didn't bother me too much. You know, I can buy it. Yeah, but I was like, what? It, was it just it, it was just so so crazy. Um, of this movie's problems, it was a very minor one for me. Well, true, true, true. The tip of the and then of course iceberg. we get you know the the kicking into the powers, and and it's funny the fire effects themselves for Johnny Storm weren't really that terrible. I mean, you know when he's holding his hand out and that they, they do the fire thing in his palm and everything that that and when he's shooting at the wall, I think the result of of the effect was bad because it basically he threw a fireball at the wall and it left not even a even a mark any time it happened. Um, but the actual effect itself, I didn't think was that terrible, given that this was done in, you know, 92, 93. Even the full CG or whatever you might want to call it of him at the end wasn't that bad either. Again, for 94, it works. Yeah, it just turned into an animated. Yeah, exactly. It, it turned into an animated segment. Exactly. Right, right. The Sue Storm stuff was pretty terrible. You know, you could tell... Uh, see, that also didn't bother me. Well, it, you know how they do it, but it's, you know, it's 94. Yeah, but it was like, you know, somehow she has the ability for her clothes to be invisible, and it was just like, it looked, it was just so bad. Like, it was so TV-level um, effects. Cro chroma key was a tried-and-true technology, sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even when Gilligan became invisible on Gilligan's Island, they used chroma keys, so... Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, we don't get the, the thing effect for, for quite a while. They try and make a reveal out of it. Yeah, that threw me. I was like, I kept waiting because he was out of focus when they first uh, crash. He's the first person you see. Right. But he's behind smoke. And I was like, okay, here's going to be the reveal. And no, it happens the next day. And I almost think it looks more like the comic book version than Michael Chiklis did. 
Yes. It's got the eyebrow ridges and everything. Mm, more, more rocky. And honestly, the mouth movements weren't that bad. Like, I, I guess they were, you know, small motors in there controlling it, not his facial, facial movements like uh, the checklist version, mm-hmm. but not that bad, actually. No, again, for like 94, the, I mean, and for this budget of a movie, the effects were okay. I mean, the, the thing that really kept them from, you know, making a big budget version of this movie would have been the special effects budget at that point, because right. there was no CG that was, you know, at that level, and there it would all have to be done with practical effects, and that caused, back then, a lot, a, you know, a lot more money than it does now to, you know, pay some guys to write code on a Crystal Dynamics machine in a basement somewhere, you know? Yeah, the, the and the thing costume too, just like you know, it's funny. I to, but... I, you know what? I just want to shout out the uh, the best costume in this whole movie. The best Doom. costumes in this whole movie were the Doom lackeys, those green tunics <laughs> with the, with oh, the yeah, Evo yeah, yeah. glasses. It just made me think of that bit in the Venture Brothers where the henchmen always have the costumes they can't, don't have any peripheral vision. Yeah, and I'm just like these guys. How could they see anything? They're like surrounding them with guns or whatever. All pointing at each other because they're standing in a circle. <laughs> and I wasn't sure at first if they were supposed to be Doom bots or not because it's it's again dark. The transfer is kind of bad. But at one point, it looked like they had silver skin. Mm-hmm. Could have just been the lighting. But I was like, are these supposed to be Doom bots in ponchos? That's so funny. Yeah, I, I I could. And it's funny because the Doom costume is actually you know pretty spot on. I mean, the the mouth and the face and you know everything else, but. It was it was pretty. The eyes needed a little work. I thought yeah. the eye holes were too small, but aside from that, pretty comic accurate. But what was the deal with the fingers, man? Like they're constantly clicking. He's constantly like moving his fingers in front of his hand, like some kind of uh, '40s serial villain, and just like. Well, it's the only expression he can give behind that mask. I mean, yeah. I, as an acting wise, I can understand why you would do that. It's the same reason Darth Vader. You know, chokes people with his fingers, and you know, yeah. it's... but it was like so. Like, I could see if they did that every so often, but every time they, it was so distracting. Like his fingers, and it wasn't just the moving; it was the clicking too. It was like they were making so much noise, and then he was always touching people <laughs> on the face. You know, it was just like, yeah. what is with this guy, man? It was very much acting to the rafters. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, wouldn't you yes. also be preoccupied? Wouldn't you also be preoccupied with other people's faces if yours was destroyed? Yeah, maybe so. But still, <laughs> it was really creepy. There wasn't even that much face touching and face off. <laughs> My favorite thing, though, is is when they decide they're going to break out and the thing goes to beat those guys up, and you don't even see him punching anybody. They go this, they do this circular fade out thing where the where you know the picture just starts spinning in a circle and then. It comes back, and again, it, it very TV level. Very Batman 66. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These effort transitions all the time in that show. You expect to hear diddly diddly exactly. behind exactly. it. And sometimes I think you might have, actually. <laughs> and the thing, it's funny, I guess just because of the costume and everything else, but every time they showed the thing walking, it looked like he had a stick up his butt. I mean, it was just like, it was just so... It probably did. <laughs> it was so That might have been more comfortable than that costume. It could yeah. be, could be. And then it was just kind of silly. They did the whole, you know, their powers were based on their character flaws, you know. Oh, that was the worst. <laughs> like, yes, they are. But that's not something that's said. It's just something that's understood. Yeah. yeah. I love I love when Reed tries to comfort Ben. He's like, I have to get out of here. Yeah. Don't follow me. And there's that whole scene where he's like, you know, hanging out behind the dumpster of a greasy spoon or something for no discernible reason. 
they should have gotten the rights and ripped the Sad Hulk music because, man, that felt like yeah. that was playing right there. Come on, oh, at least man. get enough money for a motel room or something. Then get together. Although I did kind of like the element of him being accepted by the jeweler's people. Like, everything to get there was kind of dumb, but the kind of idea of that, especially if it had been the Mole Man or something, like, actually the Mole Man, that could have been an interesting story thread. It could have been. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, they get into the whole bit where he changes back to human form, you know, when Alicia's threatened, and then he and then he gets angry and he tra- and transforms back. You know, they kind of made him into the Hulk almost, where... Although I I was reading you know up on this movie and apparently that was something that used to happen quite a yeah, bit in, in the, the early, early days, Fantastic sure, Four comics. Sure. He would just change back for no reason and then come back later. But um, yeah, didn't didn't work here. And the fights in general were just bad, like just mm-hmm. horrible choreography, horrible. The whole re- you know, Sue going invisible and guys, you know, shooting each other or running into each other. And it was just. Like... I-, I love when Reed tripped like eight people. Yeah. Like they just kept running into his leg yes. after four people in front of him had already <laughs> yes. tripped and fallen over. They should have just gone ahead and edited in like the Hanna-Barbera sound effects. Yeah. The... Some of those. Like, <laughs> that said, when like four people jump on the thing and he throws them all, that actually kind of worked pretty well. That was, yeah, the only part of the fight where I was like, yeah, that actually. That actually works. I, I agree with you there. Um, my favorite is that Doom is going to fire a laser at New York, and it is going to have the effect of a nuclear bomb. Like I was of like, that's how exactly the... how lasers work. And it was awesome because they used that whole, um, you know, post-war nuclear devastation government uh, footage. Again, you were saying, Jim, you know, the whole stock footage thing. It's a tried and true tradition going back to Ed Wood. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, in the middle of New York, and we're going to show a farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere that gets totally destroyed uh, by by this laser. Well, you said New York. I mean, New York's a big place. It's not just the city. He could have been, you know, shooting Ithaca. No, but for some it was reason. that same iconic thing that you see yes. like a million times <laughs> in the original A bomb test that of that house. Yeah. You know, I mean, as I'm describing it, you're probably picturing it. Oh yeah, yeah. And then I love that Johnny is apparently able to fly faster than the speed of light to outrun a laser. And then deflect a laser with fire? I don't think that's how lasers work. Because science. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, like we said, you know, it turns into an animated segment. And it's eh, not really terrible, you know, for what it is. But even there, they reuse, you know, footage of him tumbling a couple times. It's the same exact footage you see at least twice. um, You know, just because of the budgetary constraints. Animation uh, costs money, son. It does. But four ninety four. I actually thought the animation of that looked pretty good. Didn't make any sense that he's flying faster than light or deflecting a laser with fire, but for 94, that did not look terrible. It didn't look good, though. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, especially when you consider, like... Do not the impression, dear listeners, that this was a good movie in any way. No, 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 no. But, I mean, it, 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 it looks worse when you compare it to something like the Jurassic Park, but yeah. that was also pushing the envelope in 94, 93. Right. Um, but still, better than I would have expected in this movie. Yeah, yeah, given the budget. I mean, again, million, million and a half, that, that's very small budget, even even at the time. And dramatically, saving the full flame on Johnny for the end was actually kind of cool. Like, you'd never see that in any other version of the Fantastic Four. The moment he gains firepowers, he's going to be, you know, fully engulfed, engulfed in flame at least four or five times during that story. But only in this version are you going to see where that gets saved until the very end. Again, because of budgetary constraints, but dramatically and narratively, kind of worked in a cool way. Right. 
So at the very end, when Doom falls and Reed's there and he has the hand and then the hand is on the ledge and it starts moving, I was like, what is with that? Like, that just, I didn't get that at all. Whose hand was moving? Doom. Wasn't he, like, letting himself go, though? No, but, like, after Reed pulls the hand back up, right? After Mm -hmm. he's already fallen? And he puts it on the ledge and they cut back to it and the fingers start moving on the hand. It's the hand of doom. I might have missed that. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's so terrible. Like, if you're going to, if you want to find a way to, you know, to say, oh, maybe he's still alive or whatever, that was, like, the most terrible way to do that. But anyway... So, Dr. Yeah. Doom will be back in From Latveria with Love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I, I think uh, we've gone over the, 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 the little good and the mostly bad with this. So uh, let's let's do some ratings. Uh, Jim, I'll let you go first. I give the Fantastic Four a not-so-fantastic three for many of the reasons we mentioned. This is not a good movie. And like I said, I'm kind of a – I'm weird. I'm kind of a connoisseur of bad movies. I love a good bad movie. Sure. Um. And so I had, I found, I probably liked this more than you guys did <laughs> just because it was so bad. And I, I kind of enjoyed that thing, uh, kind of thing. But, um, this was not a good movie. Although to be honest, I think I would given the chance if I had to, you know, I had a gun to my head and had to watch this or, um, rise of the silver surfer, I probably would watch this again. Wow. So. I can't say that. Jordan. I'll actually give it a four. Is it a good movie? No, but it's nowhere nearly as bad as I would have expected. It's fairly comics accurate, even in places where I think that was detrimental, like the whole Young Sue and Reed relationship, what it, for what it was anyway. Again, not good, but it was watchable, and it did some interesting things. Again, fair enough. I will give it a two and a half. I think the only thing that that not make it like a one or even I guess I guess one would be the lowest. I I, I couldn't give it a zero, but um, the costumes were pretty comic perfect. Uh, you know, just the the blue and the white. The Doom costume was good. The fire effects weren't uh, horrible. Um, I thought the lady that played Sue Storm was was uh, pretty cute, so that was a plus. Um, but yeah, overall, just just really bad and it, and unfortunate, you know, too, because I, I think with if they I think if they doubled the budget, which still would have been a pretty modest budget movie, and hired maybe you know not not no offense to. Um, no offense to the director, but if they had hired more a more competent or more seasoned director uh, than Mr. Sassoni, uh, and and maybe uh, doctored up the script a little bit, I think it could have been maybe not a great movie, but a decent movie. Um, so yeah, two and a half for me, um, which rounds out the rankings. And if you like the movie talk, we have a project that we are uh, kind of working on currently and ongoing. Our top twenty movies project. Uh, we. Uh, boys over at Half Hour Wasted just had uh, revealed some of their lists and some of their picks on their lists. Uh, what we did was we had all of our hosts of our uh, all of our podcasting network pick their top twenty favorite per, uh, movies. Russ was kind enough to collate and uh, and disseminate all of that uh, media, all of that data into uh, a master list. And uh, in March, you're going to be hearing um, like our some of our personal picks from our list, and we're going to go over the master list and kind of. Spin some shows out of that. Um, as well as over on Retropolis, I'm doing my top eight movies from each year of the 80s, um, with my first entry being 1980, obviously. Uh, you can check it out at taylornetworkofpodcast.com. Uh, actually, as you hear this, as we record this, I will be later in the week, probably as you release this, I will actually be on my way 
Um, I'm actually headed to Dallas to go sit with the boys at Half Hour Wasted, and we're going to kick off the first episode of the Top 20 movie. So we'll actually reveal the list there. Um, and then, like like Jim was saying, from there, I think each show is going to spin off and kind of do their own thing and talk about individual lists and you know stuff that didn't make it, stuff that had their you know head scratch, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's it's been a lot of fun, uh, and uh, I think it's it's somewhat relevant to this podcast. I think there's a lot of uh, superhero movies that are going to make that list. Um, just just looking at it offhand. Um, but so I, without further ado, I'm going to spin the wheel. So the wheel has spoken, and March's. I think we'll get one in before Captain America: The Winter Soldier. So uh, it looks like March's uh, real heroes will be on uh, the DC new classic, Green Lantern. Oh no! Oh, really? I have not seen that. Yes, I'm hoping we actually get a good movie this time. One day, Jim. <sighs> one day. Eventually, the list will be whittled down to the point where there's nothing left but good movies. I hope so, man. Spoiler spoiler alert, but I was not a fan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we will, uh, that'll be the next episode of Real Heart. Like I said, I'm pretty sure we can do that before, um, do it for March. That'll be before Captain America the Winter Soldier, which I think um, will be be a real fun one to do. uh, Coming up in April. And also in... Also in comic book movie news, the Guardians of the Galaxy trailer finally came out. We have not had a chance to talk about that. Were your Ugas sufficiently chocked by that trailer? They were indeed. Say that for a real BS show, though. That's true. I I will just say that I have had hooked yeah. on a feeling stuck in my head now for a good week. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of judging by the download numbers uh, from iTunes and whatnot, I think a lot of folks have. And I think I had that exact same walk. I think I did as well. (laughs) Nice, with the orange and everything? Yes, with the orange uh, headphones and everything. That's cool. All right. Well, again, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Real Heroes on uh, Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. I should should say that. Um, The the unreleased uh, The Fantastic Four. And like we said, join us next month for uh, DC's Green Lantern uh, starring Ryan Reynolds. Um, Until that time... You can uh, join us over at hhwlod.com um, and follow all the great podcasts that we have on the network. Um, check out our Facebook group. Just search HHWLOD uh, on Facebook, and you'll find our Facebook group there that has all the shows on the network. Um, leave us a voicemail. Let them know that you're leaving it for not for Real Heroes at 972-798-3830. So... Until next time, this is Russ for Jim and Jordan signing off. Have a good week, everybody. It's clobbering time.